Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of My Favorite Friendship. I'm Brian Wool. And I'm Mark Musinski. And we are best friends. My Favorite Friendship is a true friendship podcast. Much like a true crime podcast, except instead of wanting to be murdered, which I assume the listeners do, or avoid <laughs> murder maybe, we want to be friends. We want to find friends. And we want to learn how to be better friends. And this whole podcast is mark and my journey with you in learning how to get better at this whole friendship thing because the world is opening up you guys this is happening we're seeing it i i actually got my second vaccine shot today mark oh man yeah by the time this comes out you'll be huggable again yeah that's that's pretty wild i'm very excited i i don't uh most of my friends have not uh, will not be vac- vaccinated and immune by that time, so I gotta wait a little bit longer. But uh, my fellow food service industry workers, <laughs> but you could we you can hang out at least. And Alyssa could could confidently go get food places or you know more in store groceries. I don't know. There's plenty of things that yeah, you can I mean, you can I, do to flex your new uh, vaccinated muscles. I mean, for me, it's the peace of mind. I don't want mm-hmm. to have to look at somebody who's maybe not behaving as cautiously as I feel they should, and then like actually really worry about my safety. Now I can just look at them and be like, oh, whatever. And it, it makes me feel a little bit better because I don't want to be COVID cop. I'm supposed to be stand-up comic, not COVID cop. Oh, you know? yeah, and, and um, you can get back to doing that, hopefully, sometime yeah, soon. Yeah, man. I mean, I've been avoiding a lot of the in-person open mics because, you know, who wants to get COVID from an open mic? Yeah. It's like the worst way to die. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> like, I had to pay $5 to die yeah. and listen to people working through their shit, you know? <laughs> I mean... No. <laughs> It would be slightly more merciful if COVID only took you in three minutes, too. But unfortunately, that's going to be several weeks. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to doing shows. Looking forward to seeing you. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the biggest things. I, I, I want to have you over for dinner. You know, have, have you and Robin see my apartment that I moved into right before everything (laughs) shut down. I, You know, the last time that I was at your apartment, I believe we were recording a test episode of this podcast, and then that lockdown happened, and we've done every episode of this remotely. And I, I almost forgot until today when we were talking about it that a lot of the fun of doing this podcast in the future is going to be getting to do it in person. Yeah, I I think it'll be better. <laughs> I'm I'm so excited. I think I think it will improve the timing. I've done what I can to edit this podcast to make it feel as natural as possible, but sometimes our audio lags and that I feel prevents for better communication, better jokes. Yeah. Better whatever. You know? Well, we'll see. I'm excited to try it, and we'll see what you all, our friends listening, feel about the in-person versions, if you can even tell the difference. Um, Oh, yeah. But this week, 
I'm I'm going out on a limb this week. Um, I know we've talked yeah. in the past about how there have been some some requests occasionally for friendships that do not go as well, or friendships of people that are maybe not as great of people, and uh, we have been hesitant to dabble in them because, you know, some we want we want to take positive. Uh, impressions of friendship but today today i have a bit of a cautionary tale what i'm really i'm really drawing this out (laughs) um yeah i want to know uh so this is the story of the friendship between martin fleischman and stanley pons the inventors of cold fusion oh Inventors, I guess I should have said in quotes if that's hearable on a podcast. But these are yeah. two two chemists who uh, were very close and collaborated on a project that they thought was not only going to change their lives, but truly change the future of the world as we know it. And possibly in spite of their friendship, possibly because of their friendship... And because they rejected other people's offers of friendship and collaboration, it turned into one of the most embarrassing science flops of all time that not only made their names and careers kind of a joke, but it it also kind of eroded the public's faith in science in a lot of key ways that are super damaging in times like we're living in now. So... And I, I, I wondered about kind of what has eroded the public's faith in science yeah, and I mean, how oh. that kind of started. Because when I was a kid, I felt like everybody was really into it. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> and, t- and then I felt like uh, around the time of year 2000, things started to become a little bit less science and a lot more heart and gut. There has been a deliberate campaign by certain... Uh, certain groups to deliberately undermine science. Uh, so they, I, you know, I'm not going to throw this whole thing at Fleischmann and Pons's feet, but it's it's just a real bummer when there's such a big breakdown in the scientific process, which is meant to to protect not only the integrity of science but also protect us from people getting carried away. Uh, it's just a real bummer when that happens, and it happens in such a public way. So. A little background on cold fusion. Do you know what cold fusion is, Brian? I I remember uh, Mr. Fusion, which was on the DeLorean and Back to the Future 2. Oh, yeah. And it was a a cold fusion reactor, a a miniature one that was able to power the DeLorean. And uh, I remember the cold fusion power plant. From SimCity 2000. That's that was right. the most efficient power plant. It was the best thing you could use after nuclear, yeah. which uh, unfortunately has has a lot uh, greater issues than cold fusion. Yeah. So, so uh, and then I also had you know physics in college and high school, but that's not as interesting as Sim fucking City. I love Sim City. That was a great game. Did you do Sim City? I had Sim City. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I also sometimes when Sim City was too stressful, I would play Sim Town, which is like 
SimCity, but with the lowest possible stakes. Like, you spend most of your time mm. planting the lawns around the houses. It was it was very calming. <laughs> but... Uh, it's, a, it's so laid this, back. <laughs> this The towns and cities, um, like like you were suggesting. So there is... We obviously... We have nuclear plants that are powered by nuclear fission, which for anyone who... Uh, did not pay as close attention as you did, Brian, in their physics uh, classes. Fission is the process of splitting atoms. And when you do that, there's a big release of energy. Fusion is the opposite of that process, where you smash two atoms together and fuse them into one atom, which then gives off an even greater amount of energy. And so for years... and, And the other thing is when you split atoms, the things you get are often, you know, hazardous nuclear waste. But we have, you know, when you fuse atoms, the things you get are, like, pretty harmless, sometimes even beneficial. So there's, like, a bunch of of green upsides to the idea of fusion, and there are, are a bunch of energy upsides because it releases so much energy. The problem is that the only way we found to make fusion happen is to... Uh, put in so much energy that to heat it up, to make it go faster, to smash the atoms together, that it ends up taking more energy to make them fuse than you get from fusing them. But there is a school of thought that says that if you can find the right chemical properties, uh, that maybe a chemical reaction at room temperature could possibly trigger two atoms to fuse together in that way and in that case you'd be able to do it without spending all the energy and power to smash them together like we have and you'd actually get more energy out of it than you put in when you really think about it it's basically like alchemy this idea that like in the past you know it's like you mix some chemicals together and then boom something turns into gold somehow it's weirdly like that Like, there's nothing we know that's supported currently that would explain how a chemical process, especially like a room temperature temperature chemical process, could turn, could get atoms to fuse. However, we didn't believe a lot of stuff existed. And so there have, throughout the past, you know, several decades, been people and continue to be people who are searching for cold fusion. And two of those people are Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons, who happened upon a what they were certain was the solution. So a little backstory on the, the two of them. Um, um, Martin Fleischman is a, a European scientist. Uh, they're both chemists. Fleischman was this sort of outgoing European scientist who exuded this sort of confidence. He was like very flamboyant. Uh, and he was almost old enough to be Panza's father. Um, he was born in 1929 in Czechoslovakia, uh, but his family was Jewish. And so in 1938, they had to move. I think they moved to like the Netherlands and then eventually to England, where he, you know, continued studying science and eventually became a, a professor who did a lot of stuff with electrochemistry. Um, Pons was kind of like the opposite. He was like a a quiet guy from a small town in North Carolina. And was he was he cool? Did people call him the Pons? (laughs) 
I, you know what? You'll see pictures of him. I doubt it. I doubt it. Sorry if did you're he, listening to this. Stanley did he Pons. keep his office in the men's room? <laughs> um, he probably does now because I don't think that he has an official office anymore. <laughs> um, and so, yes. Uh, what happened was Pons. You know, he he had gone to University of Michigan. He was he was a a very gifted chemist, and he had gone to University of Michigan. He worked on a bunch of projects, but dropped out before finishing his degree. Somehow ended up at the University of Southampton in England, studying abroad to finish his degree. And that is where he met Martin Fleischmann, who was the, I don't know if he was the head of the department, but he was another chemistry professor there. And Pons really respected Fleischmann for, I mean, he I think at the time was already like a pretty renowned chemist. And uh, and Fleischmann thought that Pons was like an incredibly bright young student. And so they struck up a, a mentorship at the time and then also a friendship. And eventually, Stanley Pons graduates, gets his PhD. He is now able to move around and work on his own projects. And so the two stay in touch for, I, I want to say they met in, let's see, in this. 60s, Fleischmann was working on his initial sort of groundbreaking work on electrochemistry. Then uh, it looks like the mid-70s is like when they met at Southampton. And they kind of just stay in touch for several years. And then finally, in I think 1983, Pons is working as, I think he's the head of the department at the University of Utah. And the two have always been talking and trying to think of fun stuff to collaborate on. And Fleischmann in the 60s had done a bunch of work with palladium. And palladium is this very, has this very bizarre property where if you put, uh, like, in this case, deuterium, which is like a water molecule that has some extra neutrons in it, uh, if you put deuterium, uh, in like, deuterium also is more commonly known as heavy water, I think, in or a water that is all deuterium atoms is heavy water. Basically, palladium can suck up like 900 times what you'd expect in deuterium under the right conditions. And so Fleischmann and Pons kind of come up with this theory that they're like, man, it's sucking up 900 times the deuterium you'd expect. What if it's sucking it up so much that it's packed in so tightly that it fuses? And so they start working on this and they and they sort of make a little what they were calling a, a fusion cell, I think. And so it has like a, a palladium rod and a platinum rod and and then they put heavy water in there and then they run an electrical current through it and that causes the palladium rod to like like suck up all the deuterium and they're you know trying different ways of doing this eventually they get this thing to work the way they wanted and their instruments measured like a hundred times more heat coming off of it than they expected and they were like a hundred times that's a lot of times holy shit did we just discover cold fusion because none of the other chemical processes that were happening would explain why there's a hundred times more heat than there should be 
like busting out of this fusion cell. And so, you know, they do the responsible thing, which is like, try it again. They, you know, do their best to um, run their experiment in for to what they believe is like to double check their work. And I can't help but imagine, though, that their thoughts started to go to how earth-shattering this discovery would be. I mean, like, you know, we're in a we're in an energy crisis right now, but this was like the 80s. They were they knew this problem then, which is also embarrassing that we haven't successfully done anything about it in like 35 years. But oh, it's been a tremendous embarrassment. We've done so little in our lifetimes, Mark. <laughs> It is, it's, it's been, very sad. We've had, yeah, it's been pretty unimpressive for like about 30 some odd years, man. It's it's rough. I mean, the internet's cool, but <laughs> I don't know. Even that's kind of debatable. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, they, they noticed that if, if this cold fusion thing worked, it would change everything. And, you know, so they were pretty excited and they knew that to do more experiments would require, to do more and more thorough experiments would require like a bunch more money. So they applied for a government grant since, you know, this kind of energy stuff could be very meaningful to the government, to the Department of Defense, things like that. So uh, they, they went to the government for a grant. But the government has a process because they don't just hand out grant money to people who claim they have a really great idea. What they often do is they get somebody else to try to verify their experiment. And so the the people adjudicating the grant reached out to a, a sort of, I guess, colleague, another professor at a nearby university uh, at Brigham Young, so also in Utah. Um, they reached out to this guy, Stephen Jones. And unlike... Uh, Pons and Fleischmann, who are chemists, Stephen Jones is a nuclear physicist. But, you know, fusion is honestly probably more so in the realm of physics. And so the government was like, this guy, he's kind of working in a similar area. Why don't we have him double check their experiment? And so Jones has his small team at, uh, at BYU, and they're, you know, they sort of adjust their experiment to match some of the the different settings uh, that Fleischmann and Pons were using and they run it and it and they do get some heat and and they're like okay maybe but fusion doesn't only give off heat um according to the sort of theoretical model that we have for what would happen if fusion is occurring it would give off a lot of heat honestly probably more than 100 times but it would also give off gamma rays and it would be just spewing neutrons because when the fusion happens, it would be kicking out a bunch of neutrons. And so uh, Pons and Fleischmann as chemists don't have a lot of experience measuring for neutrons. They measure, they knew how to measure for heat. That's what they measured for. Jones and his team as physicists were like, hey, you know what's been recently invented? Neutron detectors. We're using those. So they start looking around for neutrons because they would definitely exist in this scenario. And at first they don't find any. And then they find a few, but it's like not enough to, to merit 
considering it to be fusion. So they're like, maybe a tiny bit of fusion is happening, but it's not as much as Pons and Fleischmann are saying. You know, but they're like, but we but we did find neutrons and, and we did get some heat. So there's there's something here, maybe. And so what, what Jones did was he wrote back to the government. He said, you know, we didn't quite find what they said, but we did find some stuff and cold fusion would change the face of our world as we know it. So it definitely merits some more looking into. I've got a proposal. I know physics, they know chemistry. What, what if you write back and offer to collaborate or an offer that we will collaborate? And, and that's apparently not a very uncommon thing at all. I think it happens all the time, especially when there are two different, especially geographically close groups like BYU and University of Utah uh, working on a similar problem especially if they both have different expertise. It's like often a very mutually beneficial thing. And so the Grant people write back to Fleischmann and Pons. Fleischmann and Pons read this and they're like, I don't think Jones was really... Basically, they, they think that Jones wasn't really looking into cold fusion quite the way they were. And they kind of suspect that their initial findings that he's kind of like ripping them off and being like, yeah, yeah, I was actually doing a similar thing. We should all work together on this extremely lucrative world-changing technology. Uh, and so they they reject the, the collaboration offer. And it was really interesting to me reading about this because I'm like, I totally understand. Like this was the first moment in which the sort of selfish instinct sent them in the wrong direction. And I and I totally understand they might have been suspicious or whatever. I definitely think they felt they were standing on a gold mine. And I think it didn't help in some way that they're that they were friends. And they're like we they could in some ways enable each other in this scenario to like you know, to be like, let's not collaborate. Let's not let it outside this this inner circle. Um, so so they they said no to the collaboration, and uh, and so what that meant then is that they're researching this, but also now Jones is onto it too, and his team. So now not only are they not collaborating, they're actually in competition. And unfortunately for human psychology in this scenario, um, the way that science usually determines, or like this scientific community determines credit for something, is, um, is whoever publishes first. So now you've got these two groups of people who have kind of hurt feelings because Jones is like, wow, they didn't want to collaborate even though we have equipment and expertise they don't. That's mean. And Fleischmann and Pons are like, screw this guy trying to take our idea. They basically... Yeah, do you feel like this is... Uh, the Sometimes capitalism can really hamper science? Is that is that kind of like part of the lesson we could take from that scenario? Is like, Oh, this, yeah. I mean, this, this scenario especially. I, I mean, look, there are ways capitalism hampers a lot of stuff. Um, but this... Basically, yeah. in this scenario... The like the thing about capitalism is it's always like following you know as long as greed is pointing people in a beneficial direction 
then capitalism is helpful. But in this case, what greed was pointing them to was a race to publish these findings. And so what happens is uh, Pons and Fleischmann sort of double down. And, you know, in order to do this, they do still need some money. So they're, you know, they're like, they're getting the hopes of their university up, who obviously, who probably stands to financially benefit the most, because that's who would be the sort of like body that would file the patents um, along, I assume, with Pons and Fleischmann personally. And so they're like, okay, we got to rush to figure this out. We're like very confident we have discovered cold fusion, but we just have to do it faster than these other people. And they're like, we probably need about, let's say, 18 more months to figure this out. Uh, Unfortunately, like five months later, they get a friendly letter from Stephen Jones, who's basically like, hey, um, we think we figured it out and we're going to publish in a couple weeks. And, uh, but even though Fleischmann and Pons had rejected him earlier, Stephen Jones made it a sort of gracious offer. What he said was, hey, why don't we, we both send our papers to the same journal on the same day, like submit them on the same day. And that way, what will happen is we'll split the credit. And Fleischmann and Pons were like, crap. You know, we thought we were going to have 18 months. We barely got 18 weeks. Like, they they didn't have the time that they expected. And this publication date that Jones was putting out there was only a couple weeks away. And, and we don't get a lot of, or I couldn't find a lot of the Jones side of the story. It's possible that he was being galvanized by all these same sort of unhelpful forces that they were. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a kind of like how news organizations rush to be the first to report the story, not necessarily the most accurate. It's, it's yeah, exactly like that. And and it's debatable. I mean, Jones reaching out and offering to submit on the same day is like sort of a friendly move, but it's also possible that he was like, yeah, I'm. it's sort of like calling someone and being like, hey, do you want to do this? We're doing it tomorrow. So he didn't really give them a lot of time. Um, but in this scenario, I mean, time is money and like potentially a lot of money. And so without any other choice, really, Fleischmann and Pons agree to this, you know, this sort of joint submission to the same journal to split the credit. And so they know they have like, you know, two weeks more to basically do as many experiments as they can to really uh, beef up their their research that their paper has substance to it. We're not really sure what happened, but instead of taking two weeks to beef up their paper and send it into the same journal... Five days later, Fleischmann and Pons submit their paper to a different journal uh, to effectively scoop Jones. Scooping him, yes. Yeah. Just like the press, yeah. And, and like, this is one of those times, it's like one of those times where, like, really all the stuff with Jones in the story are, like, if they had just opened themselves up to, like, friendly collaboration... To, to sort of viewing people not as, like, predators trying to take some of their their precious cold fusion money and, and just sort of 
embrace the idea that someone might have goodwill and want to work with them, they could have avoided a lot of stuff. And and this obviously is like a big breach of etiquette in general. And and just sort of like it, first off, it's a dick move professionally, personally and professionally. But it's also a dumb move because they didn't have they already barely had any time to finish their experiments. And they definitely didn't in this scenario. But what happened was the the journal they submitted to, which was called like the, the Journal of Electrochemical Research or something like that, saw this paper come up and they were like, holy shit, someone thinks they discovered cold fusion. This could change the world. And so instead of putting it through the normal peer review type process that they would, they did an expedited process to to just sort of get this thing out to the world as soon as possible. And uh, unfortunately, because... So normally the way that that process works is people look at the paper, they, they analyze the data, because oftentimes the scientific conclusions are based on interpreting the results, which people could interpret differently. They also inspect the different experiments that were done to see if the experiments themselves were you know, done on solid footing. And, and for example, it, they could have found uh, a number of things. Like, um, for example, they could have found that Fleischmann and Pons, they, although they were tracking heat from the deuterium, the heavy water, they never ran their experiment with normal water as a control to see whether or not that would also produce excess heat. Uh, and Fleischmann and Pons also were measuring heat in a way that was kind of, can get incredibly subjective based on how much like gas is released, not based on, it's not like they were, could stick a thermometer in there and just look at what it said. So even that process had a lot of estimation to it and potential for error. Um, and so, but unfortunately, this journal, who was also super excited about getting this thing out, uh, just kind of skipped over that part. Um, or not skipped over it, but sort of did a rush job. And then to make matters even worse, instead of, uh, and it, instead of waiting for the paper to publish, the University of Utah called a press conference. And so in 1989, there's this press conference where, where the like head of some department for the university and Fleischmann and Pons. And I can put the video of this in there. It's, it's crazy to watch. Like these people are convinced they are, they are about to shake the foundations of our civilization. They just oh, announced to the world that they've figured out cold fusion basically. And they, they couch it, you know, there's some like, like still working on it kind of language, but like the, they call the press conference and that that's yeah. what they're telling people. And so, that's what everyone reports. And, and and at this point, like I said, the journal hadn't even published their paper. So, so what happened was the scientific community was like, what the fuck is going on here? And uh, because it was like the late 80s, they couldn't, it's not like they could email around the report, but this, the scientific community was so like annoyed at how, kind of 
carelessly this has been handled and then how you know they're all getting questions now from their like non-scientist friends that are like oh my god how does cold fusion work and they're like i we don't even know that it does yet so what happened was people started leaking their paper and a leak at that time just meant faxing it around to different people uh and so they started leaking their paper before it was published faxing it around and people started trying to replicate the experiment to see if they could actually verify it. And it was tricky because, you know, in a normal paper like that, a scientific experiment has tons of moving parts to it. It, it you know, there's like all these tiny little details that are hard to capture that might affect how you would replicate an experiment. And so that's not uncommon. And normally what happens is if you want to replicate someone's experiment, you write to them and they say, hey, here are the answers to your questions. Good luck replicating my experiment. Please continue to prove me right. Instead, Fleischmann and Pons just said no. So they just wouldn't tell anybody how to replicate their experiment. And then on top of that, they started to make ad hominem attacks just against anybody who was like speaking against them. And, and just kept insisting that they had figured it out. They must have known that this experiment was not solid science because their paper that they submitted, they ended up having to submit a, a, like two pages full of corrections, which I, the, from the way that was phrased in the things I was reading, sounded like more corrections than usual. Um, and then, And then eventually the article comes out. And as soon as the article comes out, all of the people who normally would have done like a peer review process have access to this paper and they just go to town on it. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they just find so many holes in this thing. And so by a few, probably a few weeks after publication, there was already like a very significant backlash against this. Uh, although that's not necessarily what they're experiencing in like the big news media, because as we know, the story, the initial announcement of something can go super viral. The retraction of it rarely gets as much play as the initial announcement. I'm wondering, like, is, is the scientific community really like one of the most vicious communities that there is? They're just waiting to prove your theory wrong. Well, I think even if it's just, <laughs> you know, even if it's, they can just be like, oh, I'm just, it's just a test. And they're like, oh, you made a discovery, huh? I'm going to test it. I'm gonna, I feel like that's exactly, science is, you know, yes, it's collaborative, but it's also like people trying to prove your theory wrong. That's true. But, but I also think, like, that's a scenario where the, the sort of competitive capitalist I don't know, whatever it is, is working in the right direction. Because there's not a lot of, there's not like a huge, and maybe it's not even capitalist in that sense. There's not a huge financial upside to proving someone wrong. It's just uh, like a, uh, I don't know, pride or something. Because they want to make sure that the things that we're putting out into the world are things that are actually true. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. out of pride, out of uh, self-preservation for the you know meaningfulness of their own jobs. But it's weirdly, mm -hmm. 
and I, and I think when done well, it can be super constructive. It's like getting getting notes on on jokes or a script or something. It's other people reading it and kicking the tires on it to make sure you've done your due diligence and trying to help you out, really. Because mm. inaccurate, sure, inaccurate science could make somebody a lot of money. Uh, certainly, there are plenty of Theranos-esque startups that uh, have made quite a bit on something like that. But but for a scientist who's, especially a scientist who's not going to get a cut of that, it seems to me like it's really about improving science as a whole and our understanding of the world. Which is the kind of thing that is like an intangible benefit. And that what I thought was so interesting is the way they described like the scientific community in this. Because it's not a community, they don't live together. They just share like an intellectual village. And mm-hmm. and the the way that the relationships within that community work are really important to the sort of security of our science. And there's no governing body. So as this was unfolding, and Fleischmann and Pons were kind of, uh, you know, not, not playing nice in the sandbox, let's say. Uh, and, and also in Fleischmann and Pons' defense, they were under a lot of pressure from their university not to divulge any details until the patents were filed. But even still... Uh, the scientific community doesn't have, there's no like, you can't go to like science court, you know, where you get like sentenced to science jail. The only pressures that they have are, um, you know, they can withhold your esteem in the field. They could withhold, uh, I guess, some funding, the ones that are on the selection boards for different grants. And they can withhold different professor and, and other job positions. And basically that's what started happening is Pons and Fleischmann started to feel their reputations under fire for how kind of shoddily this was handled and how rushed it was. And so eventually they, they begrudgingly agree to let this one guy who also works at the university of Utah sort of double check their work. And by this point, they had gotten hold of their own like neutron detector. So they were like, we've found neutrons too. We found heat. We found it all. The quantities didn't really make any sense, but you know, they were claiming at least enough to say fusion is happening. And this, uh, this other scientist comes in, he starts running tests and he's maybe a little bit more experienced at detecting the neutrons. And he's like, not seen any neutrons, guys. And uh, Fleischmann and Pons, I think Pons especially at this point was like the most vocal, I guess I was about to say defender, but he was more like a vocal attacker of other people. Uh, just sort of claimed like, well, that's because the fusion, the fusion wasn't happening at the time you were recording. Uh, and he was like, you know, the only time it happened was this one time period. And that time period he named happened to coincide with a, a brief power outage at the facility. So he was like, ah, it's too bad your instruments couldn't detect anything because uh, there was that power outage. But the fusion was definitely happening then. Um, and the, apparently the joke was on Pons because somehow either through backup power, a generator or something, the instruments were detecting at that time. And the guy was like, yeah, 
Still no neutrons, man. I- I'm trying here. I'm trying to help, but I'm just not seeing anything. And so, basically, by about six months after their press conference, uh, the scientific community and everyone else had kind of turned their back on cold fusion. And Oh, and that guy that was doing the experiments, um, they threatened to sue him if he didn't retract his claims that the uh that he wasn't finding anything and so how unscientific yeah and that was that was i think the thing that got everyone riled up the most is they're like yeah it's fine if you like screwed up and thought you found something and you you ran a hasty experiment like we don't love it but it happens you got carried away you thought you were going to find the pot of gold at the end of the cold fusion rainbow but the way that they just spiraled and like dug in after that is I I'm to me I think what pissed everyone off the most. Yeah. And so it's very very cinnamon toast crunch of them. Yeah. Uh, um and so that's so a current joke for this week that probably won't make sense when this thing airs. I don't know. Um but, uh, well, I mean, do you want to explain it for people for future weeks? Oh, you don't know about the Cinnamon Toast Crunch thing? Where Jensen Carp found shrimp tails and all oh, sorts no. of things. Oh, no. I thought it was a reference to something else entirely. What? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I gotta look this so, up. So, Jensen Carp, who's from the Kevin and Bean show in L.A. out here, he married Topanga from Boy Meets World. He does all sorts of stuff. Um... Of all people, found shrimp tails in his uh, cinnamon toast crunch and all sorts of other gross things, and then he tweeted at them to be like, "Hey, what's the deal?" Yeah. And instead of like trying to correct the situation, cinnamon toast cinnamon toast crunch tried to double down, and it, uh, they just look like such heels here, and now. Like, different labs are offering to test the Cinnamon Toast Crunch to find out what everything in there is. It's certainly nothing good. It's very upsetting to anyone who does, like, a really good look into this on Twitter. Uh, it's quite popular on Twitter. It's it's, uh, it's it's been the rage of convos for the last, <laughs> like, three week, or three days. Well, I hope, I hope uh, scientists like, oh my God. take down Big Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I mean, it's such a dick I, move. I, I'm. It was shocking to me that they would try to uh, put up a a fight on this. Yeah, I don't know. You think they're just saying sorry? We're General gonna Mills, figure it out. I think they're gonna lose their rank, and they'll be busted down to captain. <laughs> captain Mills. Anyway, yeah. What what a what a sidetrack. I'm sorry. I thought I I assumed everyone knew about this. Cinnamon Toast Crunch debacle. I, you know what? I thought it was just a reference to like an old commercial where they talk about how they make the like cinna dust or whatever in a lab. <laughs> this is way juicier. <laughs> Literally juicier. Oh my goodness. Oh, the it's upsetting. It's very upsetting. Because I love Cinnamon Toast Crunch and I want to believe that they care about me. But boy... They don't give a fuck. Yeah, I just... And they, like, wanted to get... They were. They told Jensen Carp, they were like, 
you just turn in the cereal box to the local police station. He's like, so you want me to just walk into the police station and be like, I have the cereal. You think that's going to be okay? No. <laughs> wow. It's so, oh, it's insane. Just send it's the insane. guy a box of cereal. Like, There's probably just a like an angry, disgruntled employee somewhere in the line who just dumped a bunch of shit into a bag. I mean, it is horrible poison. The stuff that's in there. Uh, it's It looks bad, Mark. It looks real bad. And, you know, I felt like Cinnamon Toast Crunch, like you said, there's a lot of science behind it. It's the taste you can see. And to be anti-science, just like... Yeah. <laughs> just like these fellas. I feel like that's, you know, that's really where we're at right now. We, we have to be able to have people call us out on our shit. Totally. And well, and what I think happens is there's two responses. There's the Fleischman and Pons response, where as people call you out, you just start doubling down. And I, what I always wonder in these scenarios, and I mean, we just went through four years of people who just like lie constantly through their teeth. So, you know, similar sense. It's like, at what point did they know that they were wrong and make a conscious decision to keep going on this path? because like you gotta know when you're threatening to sue a guy who did experiments disproving you you know what i mean like that pot of gold for cold fusion only comes if cold fusion exists you know like there's no i don't understand the lot i mean maybe you could get some money you know to to keep researching or something like that but like at that point you you know you're tanking your career forever. It feels like this is like a greater sin than the captain of the Titanic. <laughs> like like the captain of the Titanic just was he had hubris, but I feel like this is hubris beyond. Well, there's you a know what I'm saying? there's a point where you're in too deep and you and you have a choice to either own up to your mistake it's basically when you find out you're wrong. When you find out... Because because the thing that's interesting about being wrong is that you don't know that you're wrong right away. In fact, uh, one of my favorite... I think this is a TED Talk or something. But there's a woman who is giving this TED Talk and she's like, you know, raise your hand if you've ever been wrong about something before. And like everyone in the audience raises their hand. She's like, great. Raise your hand if there's something you know you're wrong about right now. And like... Most people don't raise their hand because if you knew you were wrong about something, you you wouldn't believe it or you wouldn't do it or or whatever. But the reality is, statistically, you are almost certainly going to be wrong about something else in the future. You just don't know what it is yet. And when you discover that thing, you have the choice of either owning up to it or doubling down and trying to get out of it before anyone else finds out. And what I think is so interesting is sometimes, like in this case with Fleischman and Pons, they both had to make that decision together. Because if one of them broke ranks, it would sell out the other. And I really wish we could see inside, like, was one of them pushing it? Were they enabling each other? Did they get so deep that they they felt like they only had each other? Because that certainly happens. Yeah, I think that's really the most interesting scene of the movie right there. 
and and we don't if know were to be a movie. And we don't you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> and we don't know where along the line that was. That could have been like it could have been like right when their first paper was getting notes. They could they could have known it before they submitted that paper. And they just thought hell if we can publish it fast enough and we can get the you know there's a world in which you're covering your mistake. There's like this little gray area where you're like, okay, we published this paper. We know it's not perfect, but we're still confident we did find something. We just have to get the funding to figure it out, you know? And then then there's a point where you pass out of the gray area and then you're just like threatening to sue people who are doing their jobs normally. Or, you know, or like making making personal attacks against other scientists to discredit them so that people don't listen to their findings against you. Uh, I feel like that's kind of like what they would do normally in, in like, I don't know. I know you say it's a scientific community is like they never hang out, but they got to have like some sort of social club kind of like in Life Aquatic. Oh, you know? oh yeah. I'm sorry. Where I, I like don't the mean they never club. hang out. I'm sure they, because they, have, like they a have whisper campaign and they're like, <laughs> well, they have conferences hey, and stuff Pons all the is time. a real idiot. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like that. Well, no, but they're, they're going to conferences and stuff all the time. So I think they do hang out in person mm. I, I guess i meant like they're not like a physical community um in the sense of like mm. we all live in chicago they're like a, a yeah a, a subject-based community who does gather for these things and so you know at some point they're more like bronies than they are like chicago yeah and if you insult enough people you're gonna have to go to some conference and like be on a panel with them or, or you won't go to that conference because you won't be invited. And I get how that uh, that can lead to some groupthink, for sure. You know, it can definitely lead to people who are afraid to speak out against a, a very well-accepted idea. But I think in the case of the scientific community, there's a really big upside for figuring out something new. So if you genuine... And also... Science is all about evidence. So if you can do an experiment properly and get evidence to back up your claim, you know, you you have that to defend yourself compared to like other communities that are very insular where you, you know, it's sort of like your opinion or your your philosophy on something that has no like provable base to it. The thing that's interesting about this whole thing is like six months later, Scientific community, pretty much done with them. However, there are still people in the world who believe that cold fusion is possible. And there are still people working on it. So there is, and that's, I think, the other thing that's fascinating about the scientific community is, like, they it's not one unified body. It's all these different people with different beliefs and different dreams, different fantasies in some cases. And even though everything we know about the the atom you know kind of implies that like cold fusion at least in the sense that we know it today is impossible we didn't even know the atom existed 150 years ago so there's people out there still doing these experiments and for all we know maybe one day they could they could redeem Fleischmann and Pons but Fleischmann and Pons's behavior was so shitty that they will still suck forever so I think maybe my takeaway that I've realized at the end of this is like, you should just be honest and friendly because someone might later find out you're right, 
But if you're too big of a dick, then you're always wrong. <laughs> I think that's the that's the real that's the real lesson right there. If you're friendly and wrong, everyone at least is like, well, they were nice. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, they'll give you another chance if you just own up to it. And I think I wonder if either of them were alone and they were feeling all that pressure from their peers, would they have owned up to it? And because they had that lifeline of a friend, were they able to sort of weather the storm and stick to their guns? And I I feel like I'd rather be known as a kind idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just like there's a certain level of disdain that people have for people who know better but still do wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's... when you're a scientist and you do wrong, I feel like that's like one of the worst things you can do. There's a part in this in this saga where when people first started casting doubt on their results, Pons was uh, Pons came out and he was like, "Oh no, no, those people who are casting doubt are wrong. Um, we did find heat. The only thing is, uh, the numbers are correct because we actually found less heat than I said earlier." And everyone's like, wait, wait. So your defense is that you lied earlier? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and everyone was just so confused and upset. But, you know, there's, again, there's like, it's like politics. It's like social circles. Like there's no, there's no judge or jury. There's no set of laws to govern these things. So if you just, if you just lie hard enough, you might be able to get out of it. At least that's what the logic was, I think. Well, we've still got a little bit of that going on today, so it's amazing how these things keep going. <laughs> yep. You know, of all of the uh, friendships of people who may have hurt the world uh, and, and not necessarily worked out the way they imagined, I feel like this was a really great one to select. I... I, I did not know what to expect when you prefaced this one. I know. I really wanted. I and I, I learned a lot today. I, I think and I, I, you know, there are a lot of negative friendships that have impacted the world. I guess this one is a negative friendship that I guess. But here's the thing. Obviously, cold fusion didn't happen. So the I guess the butt of the joke is that it didn't impact the world. But the reality is it did. It costs all of those scientists who had to fight to verify or unverify their results so many hours of their time. And it costs over $100 million of taxpayer money in research to prove and disprove this. So, you know, this kind of like bungle is not without cost. But luckily, in the realm of friendships of negative value... Uh, this is a gentler one. And it's a helpful cautionary tale that when you're wrong, it's, you're going to always do better to just try to fix it as soon as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Man. I... Man. I I did not know about this tremendous failure in fusion. I just thought people, like, just gave up on it after SimCity 2000, <laughs> and then I was... I'm not sure if it was really available in SimCity 3000. It might have been. <laughs> and that's what I... I mean, I kind of right. thought that it was a science failure until I got into it. And I was like, man, they had so many 
this is truly an interpersonal, it's a one science failure and like a hundred interpersonal failures. And I, and I think that's so many of the times, so many of the people and the rage against things like cancel culture or whatever, you know, it's like people screw up, but then they just fucking double down. And it's like, you, you know, there's a lot of people who could be given a second chance or sort of like a, a lighter sentence, if you will, not that there's a real judge, but you know, they could, they could redeem themselves if they just address the problem when it was uncovered. So I think that's, that's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to try to address every problem I create as I uncover it. (laughs) So everyone in my world, be ready for some apology texts and, uh, some some very self-deprecating tweets. I don't know. <laughs> you barely interact with anyone anyway. Who are you going to do? Yeah, I'm going to have an easy you're week. Gonna it's fine. You're going to keep saying you're sorry to Robin? <laughs> yeah. I do that anyway. She knows. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, what are, you, what are you, like, getting drunk and wronging people? There's nobody to see. <laughs> We're just quarantined. Just apologizing to the shows on Netflix that I didn't continue watching. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for letting I'm me sorry, share. The crown. <laughs> I just couldn't identify with you anymore. <laughs> um, thanks for letting me share that story. Yeah, this was awesome. Thanks, man. To the dark side of friendship. Or at least the the <laughs> ineffectual side. Um, for everyone... Well, yeah. Please... Uh, I was going to say, please, everybody, uh, reach out to us on social media at my fav friendship on Twitter or my at my favorite friendship on Instagram and Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show, what you think about, uh, you know, any friendships that you want to submit. Uh, just any of your thoughts. Reach out. We love to hear from our friends. Uh, you can also reach out to us personally on social media. I'm at Brian Wool. Mark is at Mark Musinski. You know, share the podcast with a friend. That's the one of the best ways you can do it. Take an episode that you enjoy and share with a buddy. Say, hey, you know, you remind me of uh, this John Favreau and a Roy Choi episode. I, I love that we cook together. <laughs> you know, there's so many great things you can do to help out the show because we make no money off this. So that would be super, super great. Um yeah, I don't know. Anything else up, Mark? You know what? I realized I'm sure I was wrong about something that has to do with science. So I'm I'm coming clean about that here, and I'll try to do better next time. And for everything oh, else, well, I hope that everyone has a great week. Oh, yeah, and a special hello to our friends in Baltimore and our friends in Minneapolis. We had a bunch of listeners in those uh, towns last week, so that was super cool. Hi to you all, and uh, I hope to see you guys soon. Now that I got my shot, ready to party soon. (laughs) Bye. All right, until then, bye.